This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. Today, we want to talk about a topic. If you're thinking about getting pregnant or if you are pregnant, it's very important. And that's when your blood pressure could spike or go up. We're delighted that we've got Dr. Teresa Patton with us, who deals in women's health care, and she's affiliated with the Methodist Healthcare System here in Dallas. Dr. Patton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. To help our listeners understand what we're talking about, what is the medical terminology related to blood pressure issues that women face during pregnancy? So the medical terminology for blood pressure that develops during pregnancy, it's called preeclampsia. You can have high blood pressure outside of pregnancy that then worsens and becomes a form of preeclampsia while you are pregnant. And we tend to refer to that as superimposed preeclampsia. So all kind of the same uh, disease process, but on a a spectrum of uh, the the way it presents during pregnancy. Is postpartum different than pre? So it's interesting that we are talking about postpartum preeclampsia because it's become a bit more um, recognized in our field as being slightly different than preeclampsia that happens during pregnancy. Postpartum preeclampsia can be a continuation of blood pressure problems that you're having while you're pregnant, but for a small percentage of women, you can also not have any issues during your pregnancy and delivery and then develop the same signs of preeclampsia after you go home from the hospital. And so we're always looking for uh, those signs to develop, especially if you are early in your reproductive years, so younger patients or older patients in their reproductive years, and especially if it's their first pregnancy, because those are some of the biggest risk factors for preeclampsia, no matter when it happens. Are there other risk factors that women should look for potentially regarding this problem? So if you have preeclampsia in a previous pregnancy, we're always going to be on the lookout for it, although we have learned in recent years that potentially being on a baby aspirin can help prevent the the development of preeclampsia in pregnancy and postpartum. The reason we've been really focused on postpartum preeclampsia, particularly in the state of Texas, is because we have a high maternal morbidity and mortality, particularly for women of color. And so we've been much more focused on the postpartum period and how to prevent some of those bad outcomes. And in women, particularly in the state of Texas, one of the highest risks for having negative outcomes in death in that first year after delivery is cardiovascular disease and hypertension disorders, which includes that postpartum preeclampsia. You know, you mentioned the maternal mortality rate in Texas, and you're so correct how it impacts minority women. Does this tend to run more in minorities? So actually, everybody's at risk for preeclampsia. I think there are many factors that go into why women of color have an increased risk for morbidity and mortality. In particular, preeclampsia kind of gets all comers. Is preeclampsia hereditary? By that I mean, if your mother had it, does that mean a daughter may have it? So that isn't on our list of risk factors. Um, What I will say, though, is that 
high blood pressure outside of pregnancy definitely has a familial um, tendency. And so if you have high blood pressure outside of pregnancy and you become pregnant, then your risk for preeclampsia is much higher. I read an article once that said sometimes this can be so serious that people have convulsions. Is that true? It is. So in pregnancy, um, we call it preeclampsia because when it develops to the point of a seizure, um, then that is actually termed eclampsia. So the preeclampsia is the uh, signs and symptoms that you have before it gets to affecting your neurologic system, which is what can cause the seizures. Now, preeclampsia also affects many other systems of the body. So it can affect your liver, it can affect your kidneys. Uh, so there are many things that it can cause, and it affects the entire body. So this is one of the things you as a physician would look for in the prenatal care, correct? Absolutely. So that's why um, if you're pregnant, and pregnant women know this very well, every time they come into the office, they leave us a urine sample where we're looking for protein in their urine. We check their blood pressure every visit. And if it starts to creep up, then, then we're going to start seeing them more frequently. We know good prenatal care is important. Are there other things women can do to reduce risk? So, you know, for many years, we've been looking for what causes preeclampsia, and we just don't know the exact answer yet. And so, you know, women are told to have a low-salt diet. Well, that doesn't really impact this. Um, they're told to be healthy and exercise. Well, that doesn't really impact your risk for preeclampsia. So the most important thing you can do when it comes to preeclampsia is to get early and frequent prenatal care. And then once you have the baby, don't just think you're, um, you're done. You need to continue to see your doctor as frequently as is recommended because that's where we pick up some of the postpartum preeclampsia. And if you ever feel just off, particularly after you have a baby, then you need to be picking up the phone and calling your doctor. Part of the reason that I think we have a problem in the state of Texas is that we don't have an expansion of Medicaid into that postpartum period for any length of time. And so um, those, a lot of women will stop seeing their doctor because they don't have coverage anymore. And, and that's when patients can get in trouble. You make an excellent point. And all of our hospitals certainly care about postpartum care, the real concern on maternal mortality. And speaking of post-delivery, how long before women are really out of danger for this risk? So preeclampsia tends to, if it hasn't developed in pregnancy, if it's going to happen postpartum, it tends to happen very early in that postpartum um, time period. However, there are other cardiovascular diseases that can develop after delivery, including postpartum cardiomyopathy, where the heart dilates and doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Um, and those things can happen anytime in that first year. And so continued care after those first few weeks after delivery is really important. Dr. Patton, my two granddaughters both were born under this. So I've had some scary moments um, so first of all, one of the things that I was wondering is if mom has this before delivery, are there any stats about whether that child will be delivered prematurely? So it really depends at what stage in the pregnancy preeclampsia delivers and or, um, preeclampsia presents. Um, and so very if it happens very early in pregnancy, then yes. Um, there are several different categories of preeclampsia. There are certain symptoms that put you kind of in the mild category. 
And when you're in that situation before 37 weeks, then we tend to try to hold off on delivery. Um, but then after 37 weeks, even if you have mild preeclampsia, we usually move towards delivery. Now, if you have several things that kind of push you over into the severe category, certainly eclampsia affecting those other organs like I talked about, then in those situations, we would move towards having a baby even if you're before that 37-week time frame. So yes, um, moms who develop this early in pregnancy are definitely at risk for preterm delivery. We're talking to Dr. Teresa Patton from Methodist Dallas Medical Center about high blood pressure before and after delivery. And also in our next segment, we're going to be talking with Lizzie Brown from Children's Health about how we can help our teens through these challenging times. All of that ahead on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. Let's jump right back in with our conversation with Dr. Teresa Patton from Methodist Dallas Medical Center, OB-GYN, talking about moms that deal with high blood pressure before or after delivery. Dr. Patton, I'm wondering, so if someone has this and then they have a delivery and then they have a second child and they have this again, how long can that chain keep going? Yeah, so when you, once you do have um, preeclampsia in one pregnancy, you are at risk for having preeclampsia with your subsequent pregnancies. And so, um, you know, my guess is she's going to be at risk for that every time. And like I said, the, the only thing that we have found that can help stave that off a little bit and get you a little bit further along into pregnancy is being on uh, baby aspirin uh, during your prenatal care. As far as telling someone when they shouldn't have a pregnancy again, I don't do that very often. So usually um, it's got to be a significantly life-threatening with a high mortality rate. And, and so if you develop postpartum cardiomyopathy where your heart doesn't function the way it should, um, those are kind of the rare circumstances where I will tell a woman it's time to not have a baby anymore. Often I'm having conversations about risks um, to having a pregnancy and then uh, letting them come to that conclusion on their own. I know you went through the list of factors here. Weight, so prominent in our culture now. How do excess pounds not related to the pregnancy affect this? There are a lot of risks with um, having obesity and becoming pregnant. Gestational diabetes, increased risk for um, hypertensive disorders, um, including preeclampsia. Um, but in and of itself, um, and, and even having babies who are overweight and, and potentially having childhood diabetes, all of those things are increased with um, maternal obesity. But in and of itself, um, I don't advise patients to not get pregnant because of my worry over preeclampsia with that. It's more about um, what I need to look for um, in that situation. Does this give indication that mom might have heart disease propensities down the road, even in her 50s or 60s? So, yeah, um, when you have preeclampsia in pregnancy, you are at risk for developing chronic high blood pressure later on in life. Um, which, you know, chronic high blood pressure leads to heart disease and um, uh, kidney disease. So all of it is kind of a spectrum that, that happens even very early in a woman's reproductive years. And I know one of the concerns for them as this unfolded was that uh, as medications were given, that those medications, of course, would go straight to the baby. How do you handle that? 
So um, I have this conversation a lot with moms. If we're giving you a medication, then um, the assessment that we've made is that the risk of not giving the medication is more dangerous for a baby. Um, all of the medicines that we use to control blood pressure, um, to help babies' lungs mature, to um, help prevent seizures when it comes to preeclampsia, all of those have been used in um, our pregnant population for a very long time, and their safety has been proven. And then I just wonder, knowing kind of how the human body can heal things naturally and on its own, could the baby kind of grow past that? I mean, if the baby's otherwise healthy, can it kind of, I don't know what it would be, but, you know, kind of rebuild or retool as though things were normal? Medications, like I said, used during this time period where we worry about preeclampsia are well beyond the stage where babies developing um, organs and that sort of thing. So there has not um, been any association with damage for that reason. Now, there are um, maturity issues that happen. So if a, a baby is born prematurely, then they would have to, outside of mom, have some of those organ systems mature. But um, the medications aren't going to affect baby. So then I think from probably mom's perspective, they, every woman probably knows somebody who has been put on bed rest at some point in the later stages of their pregnancy, right? And that's probably one of the things like, oh, I don't want to have to go sit in bed for three or four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, why do you put people in bed for such a long period of time? And then what do you say to people as far as if that's one of their concerns? So bed rest we've used for lots of different things in pregnancy, and really the only thing that has stuck um, as being um, sound medical advice is bed rest once you develop high blood pressure. And the whole point of that is that if we can keep you at rest, then we can keep your blood pressure under better control to gain a little bit more time for baby. That's one of the things that we use to try to put off delivery and keep you in that mild range if we can. Um, and it is boring, and it's boring whether you're in the hospital or whether you're at home. Um, so, you know, I tell women all the time to have lots of stuff to keep them distracted because otherwise you're going to sit there and wonder and worry and be bored for a few weeks. But every day we get um, inside mom is worth two or three in the, in the NICU or the ICU. So um, if we're doing it, it's, it's just to put off delivery just a little bit of time. Well, I would say I know for the type A achievers, they know that they could complete a, a college course during that time. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, but we don't want them to be stressed. So. Right, exactly. Make it an easy one, right? Well, exactly. and at what point are you, I know you mentioned some of those weeks that you are trying to achieve, but like, is there a point where you'll keep pushing to try to get to week number what? Most of the time, we're talking about getting to 37 weeks when it comes to hypertensive disorders and pregnancy. On some rare occasion, if your blood pressure is under really good control, sometimes we'll try to push that to 38, 39 weeks, but in general, 37 weeks is what we're looking for. We've been listening to Dr. Teresa Patton from Methodist Dallas Medical Center discussing pre- and postpartum preeclampsia, an issue that many women in Texas face. Thank you, Dr. Patton. Now we're going to pivot, and we had an excellent discussion with Lizzie Brown, a family therapist at Cook Children's Healthcare System back in April. There were some questions that we did not get to air that Thomas asked that we want to share with you now. 
Lizzie, I know there is something that has shifted dramatically, even over the last decade, maybe even over the last five years, teenage sexuality. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, part of the wonderful things about this generation is they have a lot more um, openness and freedom to explore sexuality and gender identity. Um, it's culturally becoming more normal to talk about this kind of thing and, and to really be open to trying to understand uh, what your sexuality and gender identity are, whereas maybe previous generations, you were more ostracized for that and, and, and more looked down upon. So um, that's definitely a topic that comes up all the time. And um, it's definitely something that we explore and talk about with kids and in um, counseling. Okay, another question. What about the pressure to go to college versus pursuing a trade today? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that people are shifting their rights and their attitudes too about what's going to work for them long-term for careers. And um, a lot of this generation of teenagers especially are not feeling like this strong pressure that college has to be the, the method that they get to, to their, um, their career goals or to what their interests are long-term. And, and, you know, there is some truth to that, that, um, you know, maybe if whatever it is, if, if you pick what you want to do and you do have to go to college to go to do that, go for that. But there may be many other careers that you choose that, that you could go to, a you know, that you can do with an associate's degree or with a trade or with a specialized program that, that you learn that specific skill. Um, so I definitely think that there's a openness to exploring that with this group of kids coming up. We're talking with Lizzie Brown, family therapist at Cook Children's Healthcare System. Lizzie, let's move the spotlight to mom and dad. I mean, 50% of the marriages now statistically are going to end in divorce. Then we have blended and divided families. So from the parents' perspective, and on a positive note here, what are some things that moms and dads can do to improve the relationship with their kids? Yeah, I def- so I definitely think getting good quality time where you're paying attention and tuned into your kid's world is a good thing for all parents to be focused on. This is a busy, busy world we live in. It's really easy to get caught up in in our our jobs and our careers and just the demands of, of, of life. And 30 minutes once a week of good quality time where your kid is the center of your attention and you can let go of your expectations for a second just to delight in your kid for 30 minutes once a week, that can go a really long way. Um, with developing that great relationship that you want with your child. Wow. You know, my next question on the list was, are parents too disengaged today? I mean, it seems that 30 minutes to develop any kind of relationship is just nothing. But if you start with that, if you're having a hard time fitting in that relationship, start there. Start there because it can do wonders. If you can fit in more than that, of course, please do that. Please do that. But if you're struggling with it, you know, set your sights on 30 minutes of undivided attention, quality time, where you can just enjoy your child's company and enjoy your child's presence. That can do so much good. So much good. Well, and you know, it's not just the kids who have the phones and the busy lifestyle. Are we parents also too distracted? Oh, I definitely think we're too distracted. (laughs) And I, so that's what we talk about active listening, intentional, be so intentional, put the phone down when it's time to listen to your kid and put, turn the TV off, sit down for dinner and, and turn all tech off. That stuff does wonders. It definitely adds to that bank of quality time when, when you're not distracted. We've been talking with Lizzie Brown from Cook Children's Healthcare System. In our next segment, we're going to talk about Alzheimer's disease. All of us have likely dealt with this with family or friends. The human side of healthcare will be right back. 
Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're delighted we're joined by Diana Kerwin, who's the Chief of Geriatric Medicine at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas. We're going to be discussing some exciting new gene therapy in addition to new advances in treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Kerwin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, as I mentioned in the introduction, there's new advances. It's my understanding there's a study that's been conducted. What's up with this new study and how it's going to help people with Alzheimer's? Right. Well, thank you very much. And and this was a, a study that was uh, many years in the making, and the information that it brought to us has been really helpful in moving the science forward of understanding why some people will develop Alzheimer's disease as they get older and others will not. Uh, so the study was actually um, a large, actually 700,000 people participated in the study in over eight countries. And it was looking at the genes or the genetic background of each of these individuals. But 110,000 and more of them had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and the other 600,000 or so did not. And so comparing normal versus someone who had developed the disease, they were able to look very closely at the full genetic sequences of what basically codes for that person's almost every single protein in the body. And they were able to find 42 new genes associated with an Alzheimer's risk that we did not know of prior to this. Um, So it's very important because again, Understanding why one person is at risk for Alzheimer's disease and not another helps us to both look at ways to prevent it, um, understand why that person might develop the disease, but then most importantly is to look for ways to treat or address the disease by looking at what does that gene really affect. Um, And that helps us find a pathway to develop a medication. So if it codes for one certain type of protein, um, we can look for ways to stop that production of that protein that might increase the risk. So that's why knowing these new genetic risk markers over and above what we had before opens up a whole area of therapeutic development as well as a whole area of understanding the disease where we can look for ways to prevent it as well. Wow, this is great information. Inflammation. How does that relate to Alzheimer's? This is an important point that actually we've been seeing in Alzheimer's research for many years. We knew that there was an an inflammation associated with the development of Alzheimer's. And actually, on a more positive note, we've actually seen data that's shown us that when we do studies where we do things to reduce inflammation, such as an exercise study. We know that exercise in any human being usually can reduce inflammation and we've seen that exercise can have a positive benefit on Alzheimer's. So we always knew that there was an association with inflammation, but we really had never elucidated where that was happening. And so a lot of the, the, or several of the genes that were identified were showing either factors that were either increased inflammation or decreased inflammation, but they were acting along that inflammatory pathway which really helps us to further solidify, you know, things that we can tell our patients more directly, things that we can do to reduce your inflammation, such as 
exercise, looking at a more healthy diet that doesn't increase your inflammatory markers but may decrease inflammation, such as something called the MIND diet, which is M-I-N-D. It was developed at a Rush University. But it gives us even more weight to why that guidance to an individual has scientific bearing now because now we know that there's genetic risk of, of inflammation that's directly linked now to Alzheimer's disease. So things like that that this study brought forward to us really again helps us not only in that prevention piece but now that inflammation pathway that's been identified will be looked at by researchers around the world and now we, they'll be looking at well, how can we develop a medication that might reduce that inflammation or affect that pathway that could treat Alzheimer's disease. So that's why something like a study like this that's so large and gives us so much information really opens up several positive pathways not only in either prevention but also treatment of Alzheimer's. Is it possible that discovering these new genes will help you determine if one's immune system is less efficient? It does help us quite a bit, actually. There was a specific um, immune factor called TNF-alpha that is associated with other auto with other autoimmune diseases such as psoriatic arthritis for one particular type of disease that affects especially the immune system but it's an autoimmune where the immune system is revved up and there's already been in other diseases where there's an immune system effect on the disease development therapies that have been developed to either reduce that immune response so that the body doesn't basically attacked it itself or act upon itself like it does in psoriatic arthritis and trying to do something where you can reduce that so that the immune system doesn't become a negative for a body but can still maintain that balance of, you know, our immune system is needed. We, we use it to fight off viruses, infections, to clean up toxic proteins and cells. So we need the immune system in a balance, but it is when it gets over revved up and might attack itself that it can cause some damage in different diseases. So this immune system gene that's been found will be an area that many researchers will begin to look at for therapeutics or treatments that might be developed for that particular person, why their Alzheimer's disease may have developed. This might be a good medication to develop for that particular person. So one other thing that this study brought up because of these genetic makeup or genetic markers now that we've seen is getting a little bit more into personalized type of medicine. We might need to, in the future, end up doing more genetic testing on patients who develop these diseases to really look at what gene risk markers did they have because certain medications might work better for them than in other person. So this really gets to the heart of trying to be more individualistic about treating a disease that although it affects many individuals, it oftentimes is a little bit different in each person as far as why it developed. I'm so glad you said that. And I want to expand on that a little bit. You know, each person is an individual. How does this study in these 42 new disease risk genes mean to current treatment and future treatment of Alzheimer's patients? Well, first thing I think is, again, when something like this comes out that has so much scientific information to improve our understanding of why the disease, disease develops in one person and not another, it really should be seen as a, as a hopeful step. The more we know, the more we can develop both prevention 
identifying people at risk, and then developing therapies that can really help them more specifically. So I think for anyone listening, I would say, you know, whether you're concerned about developing Alzheimer's because it's in your family or you're just, having, you're, you're just concerned because you're getting older, I think it really opens up the hope to let you know that this disease, because the science is moving so fast, is so different now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. So it's not, there doesn't need to be as much fear of it because there should be much more hope. We know so much more. There's several treatments that are really close to being able to be used for the actual treatment of Alzheimer's over the next few years, um, many that are in the, the, the later stages of development. But I think also for an individual, this tells us that it does have some common factors to it, which is why things that an individual can do are so important. Um, so things like exercise. We know exercise is very brain beneficial and part of a brain-healthy lifestyle regimen. We know that there's diets that you can try to, you know, adjust your lifestyle to, to that are healthier for your brain. And there's no other things that you can work with your physician on, such as controlling your blood pressure, controlling your cholesterol, controlling your sugar levels if you do have diabetes, that can be very helpful for you to maintain a brain-healthy lifestyle and medical regimen. And so the importance of that is there are things that an individual can do today that although this study doesn't directly tell us how much does exercise help, we already have studies that have told us we know it's beneficial. We're now still looking at why exactly it is. It's likely lowering inflammation, lowering blood pressure. But having that mindset of let me get all the information I can about my own health by talking to my doctor, what's my blood pressure, what's my cholesterol, what should I do about my diet, which, how much can I exercise safely, going towards it in that, that type of, um, I guess, perspective to say, the more I know about my brain health and the more I can do to improve my brain health, I can likely reduce my risk of developing Alzheimer's. So I think it helps to reduce some of the fear of the disease while the science continues to move very quickly, and there are a lot of therapies in development, again, also the more that physicians are learning about how they can advise their patients on how to reduce their risk by improving their brain health is so important to have those conversations with your doctor. I want to ask you this question. You've talked about a healthy lifestyle. We know smoking is a health hazard. How does it impact Alzheimer's? Smoking in general, of course, we know that there's so many negative health effects from smoking. And in Alzheimer's disease, because we already know that there's these genes that tell us that if you increase inflammation, it does increase your risk of developing Alzheimer's. We know that smoking increases inflammation. We know that smoking oftentimes leads to other vascular problems such as hypertension and just poor blood flow. So overall, something like that, that is... Um, definitely a negative to your health. That's where seeking out, you know, healthcare systems that can really help you to manage something like that. It's difficult to stop smoking, but many, many physicians' offices, many healthcare systems have programs to help you stop smoking because we know how detrimental it is. So for someone who is concerned about Alzheimer's, who maybe does smoke now, definitely that would be a number one priority to improve, improve their overall health and their brain health would be to focus on, you know, trying to stop that habit and then looking at ways they can improve their healthy lifestyle habits, such as exercise and diet. And again, all of that is done within your health system with your physician, with exercise um, specialists, with people that can help with smoking cessation. So really looking for those resources is important so that you can take control of your own health and improve it. 
Is there hope at the end of the rainbow for Alzheimer's patients? Families across North Texas have been dealing with this with their loved ones. You can also catch this entire interview on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, also our YouTube channel under the same name. More hope for families dealing with Alzheimer's next on The Human Side of Healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. Families across North Texas are dealing with Alzheimer's, and we're talking with Dr. Diana Kerwin, who is a geriatric medicine physician at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas. Steve? As you look to the future in Alzheimer's treatment, is really the future and the revelations we learn about it in genetics? A good majority of the answer will come from genetics, but we have to put that into a bit of a broader perspective because sometimes when we say it's all genetics, then we think, well, there's nothing we can do, but that's not true. We know that our genes are not stagnant. Our genes actually interact with our environment. Um, So you may carry a gene that increases your risk of developing Alzheimer's, but there's likely things you can still do by, again, looking at what's your, how can I improve my brain health? How can I improve my overall general health condition that's going to reduce their risk, whether or not you have that gene? We know this already from a gene that we've known about for many, many years in research and in clinical practice, which is called the APOE4 gene. That gene, we know that if someone is a carrier of that gene, which is actually linked to cholesterol carrying within the body, that's what that gene does. We know that if you you carry that particular gene type, you're at increased risk of developing Alzheimer's. However, not everyone with that APOE4 gene develops Alzheimer's disease. So we we know that there's ways to counteract these risk genes. But I wouldn't say that the you know genes are going to be the end all be all. We know we have to continue to look at what are these gene risk markers? How do they interact with that individual's environment and maybe increase their risk? How can we counteract it by help them to prevent the disease? And then the other piece about the genes is it does really open up a very significant portion of information for us to develop new medicines. It all starts with what is that gene that increases risk program to do, and then how can we counteract that with with the medication development. So although a lot of our information about Alzheimer's over the coming decade will come from this genetic knowledge, it's really not the only thing we can do. We still need to continue to look at these, you know, lifestyle factors, exercise, blood pressure, diet, you know, all the things that we can do to counteract any of the genetic risk markers that we might have in- inherited. But again, I still think that there's definitely ways that you can counteract it. So continuing to learn as much as you can about your own individual health and then talking with your healthcare provider to say, well, how can I improve my health? Because I know that no matter what, that's going to likely counteract or help me reduce my risk that I might have inherited. You know, you bring up some excellent points and to our listeners out there that may think, Am I at high risk for Alzheimer's? You know, for example, as you know, in many diseases, prostate cancer, you have a PSA. You know, women can have monographies done related to breast cancer. Is there any nugget of knowledge you can give our listeners to help them determine if they may be at high risk for Alzheimer's? Unfortunately, the number one risk factor 
is getting older. It is aging of the brain. And so that is something that for all of us after we reach age 65 and every year thereon, our risk increases every year just by getting older. So there's really not anything that you can say is that person at high risk. Well, just by our age, sometimes we are in a higher risk category. However, we do know that not everybody as they get older develops Alzheimer's. So we do know that some people are at increased risk over others. Um, I think sometimes you can look at your, your family history, although again, it's not the end all be all. If there was a, a family history of someone close to you, either a parent or, or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle who developed Alzheimer's disease, you likely are at somewhat increased risk. But that's where then you can start to look at, again, your individual habits and your individual lifestyle choices of how can I decrease my risk even if I do have that gene that relative may have had. Because there still are ways to reduce the effects of that risk marker. So for anyone who feels they are at high risk because of their family history or maybe they do know their genetic makeup, there are some genetic kits you can do that people do find out. They get a report from sometimes it's Ancestry or 23andMe, they get a report that says you are at increased risk. Well, what does that mean? And again, that's where talking to your healthcare provider about your concerns about that risk and then taking control of that of saying, I'm going to do everything I can to counteract it because that is the most important part of Alzheimer's. It's really that brain health phenomenon or, or brain healthy lifestyle um, approach that you can take to it that you know that you're doing something positive for your health. And so even if you are high risk and even for someone with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease who's experiencing memory loss, we know that exercise can help their, their memory remain sharper. We know that exercise can help them reduce the progression or slow the progression of the disease. We also know that diet can do the same thing. We know that um, good blood pressure control, good cholesterol control, all of those things come into play. So this is a very important conversation to have as you're maintaining your health in general. Important to talk to your doctor about it, about what you can do. You know, Thomas and I interviewed a urologist recently, and we talked about urinary tract infections and how it can make people disoriented. And it's not like Alzheimer's disease. It can be cleared up quickly with medication if it's a urinary tract infection. Would you agree with that? I agree very much, and it's a really good example to bring up because this this often um, in in as we do get older, as a person gets older, uh, something as simple as a, a, a cold or, or, like you said, a bladder infection uh, can cause some confusion and, and people oftentimes get very fearful to think, oh, is this the onset of my dementia? And as, as the urologist said, the Alzheimer's doesn't come on like, like that suddenly. And so one thing that this brings up when I, when I hear that story is the importance of being evaluated medically when you do have concerns about your memory. Either memory loss that you're noticing is getting slightly worse over a long period of time, which that's the most common presentation of, of an Alzheimer's process is memory loss that comes on over you know five to ten year period that becomes more noticeable with time versus something that comes on all of a sudden is usually not Alzheimer's, but it is a sign that you need to be evaluated because you likely have something else that is somehow um, affecting your body that's causing this confusion or you're not as clear as possible. So going to your healthcare provider to say maybe it is a bladder infection or sometimes it's a medication or sometimes it's 
something else that's treatable, and it's important to have that evaluated just again as part of a good general health regimen. Um, don't take it to be, well, this is the first sign and I just have to let this happen. It is important no matter if it's memory loss that's coming on over slowly over a long period of time or something that comes on suddenly, which you definitely need to have evaluated and treated. But both of those scenarios is, is a place where you should go talk and see your healthcare provider to either talk about what evaluation should be done and then again, what treatments are available. This is our last question. Is there a rainbow ahead for Alzheimer's patients? I do believe so. I do believe that um, what will happen is, as I said, not necessarily a, a cure. This is a chronic disease that occurs over many decades and starts to degenerate or cause the, the death of neurons. And so to think that we'll be able to give you medication and make your memory like it was when you were, you know, you know in your 30s, 40s, or 50s, or, you know, a decade before when it was much sharper, that's probably not likely. But what we will find is we can likely maybe stop the progression of the memory loss so that it doesn't go into the more severe stages where the person can maintain a level of independence. They might still go through a period of time where maybe they need to get treated and then they can stop treatment for a while and then maybe when it starts to come back they start treatment again, which is similar to what we see not only with HIV but also with you know different cancers where we kind of treat it goes into remission and then we, we might have to treat again in the future. But we kind of accept that when we're trying to stave off or treat a chronic disease, it is something that we just can't snap our fingers and make it go back to complete normal like it was before the disease started. But there, there will be a day where we can keep it in check. People can maintain their independence by taking these or by getting these treatments. And again, they might be able to go through periods where they don't need treatment for a while, and then maybe if it starts to come back, they would receive treatment again. So I do think that's likely what we're going to be looking to in the future or what the future will look like in Alzheimer's, which I think is still something acceptable versus getting a diagnosis and basically just having to live with the decline over time, which is a little bit about what we're, we have to do right now. Dr. Diana Kerwin, geriatric medicine physician at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital of Dallas. Steve, with hope for our Alzheimer's loved ones. Absolutely. We want the hope. We want that rainbow. We want to make sure that life gets better every day. Thank you for listening. Join us next week on the human side of healthcare.